Hi, everyone, and thanks for listening. You're listening to another episode of Bright Lights, Consumer Trends in Conversation with Element 54. I'm your host, Julianne Ng. In today's episode of Sustainable Futures, where we look at sustainability trends from the perspective of different industry experts, I have the pleasure of speaking with Zachary Dominitz. Zachary is an environmentalist, creative problem solver, and relationship developer with more than 25 years experience building teams, brands, and business. He currently serves as global SVP for TerraCycle, overseeing brand partnerships around the world. He's previously had the privilege of working with the likes of Oxfam, UNICEF, and Amnesty International as Director of Partnerships for Change.org, serving on the executive team as Head of Corporate Affairs for Cafe Direct, writing a column for the Huffington Post, and writing propaganda for the White House in the Media Affairs Department for President Clinton. He spent the six years prior to TerraCycle in the agency world, five as VP of Business Development at Siegel & Gale, and one as SVP Partnerships and CMO at CBX. He's helped build and launch companies and nonprofits addressing topics from water aid and carbon offsets to social media technology and eco-conscious consumer goods. He serves on the board of the Literacy Trust and the Ad Council. Born in London and raised in Northern California, Zachary has worked and studied in the US, Europe, Australia, and South America. He has a BA in communications from UCLA and an MBA from London Business School. Welcome to the podcast, Zachary. It's quite an impressive resume you have, and thank you for being our guest today. My pleasure to be here, and thank you. So let's start by um, a very basic question, and that is, how do you define sustainability? It's interesting when you think about sustainability because it's such a big word, and I think people use it to mean so many different things. So if you're in a business context, sustainability can be as simple as, is your business going to survive? Is it sustainable? Uh, I think these days people think of sustainability in terms of everything that has something to do with being green or being environmentally conscious. Uh, for me, the personal definition of sustainability is it's a little bit uh, environmentalist and eco-warrior, and it's a little bit burning man. And that's really just to say, make it as nice or nicer as you found it. You know, And I think that goes to, to how we interact uh, with the planet. Um, and with our communities within the planet, you know, so that for me is really about sustainability. You know, are you, in, are you ensuring the space or the business or the planet or the fill in the blank for the next generation or even the current generation? I like how you express that, make it nicer than you found it. I think that's, uh, you know, part of the ethos for, for environmentalists is a little bit about leave no trace. You know, and I think sustainability truly is why not, you know, why not make it better? Why not plant a tree? So tell us a little bit about your personal and professional interest in sustainability. I grew up mostly in far north rural northern California, and it was a pretty uh, austere childhood in terms of part of it. A lot of it was spent with no electricity and no plumbing. Uh, and ensconced in the redwoods and the Pacific Ocean and just surrounded by that beauty. And my father was an environmentalist and worked at an environmental center in Arcata, California, which is about five or six hours north of San Francisco. And so I grew up in that community. You know, I grew up focused on saving the redwoods and a lot of the earlier eco campaigns. Uh, and it's just been in my consciousness, in my blood ever since. Uh, and I think as with a lot of what happened with a lot of the hippies in Northern California, 
except for perhaps fashion. I think they were right about most everything, you know, in terms of you think about organic food or integrating Eastern philosophy and medicine or practices like yoga into our daily life, and certainly around uh, considerations and protections to the planet. So this topic has really had strong roots for you and that have come very organically then. Yeah, it has. You know, it's interesting. I spent uh, the last six or so years prior to TerraCycle in the agency world. And for the most part, that was my first foray out of explicitly business for good type roles. You know, if it was change.org or fair trade coffee or eco-conscious consumer goods or a lot of the other things that I had done, it was really squarely in this idea of sustainability with a big capital S, you know, fairly broad. And, and I went into the agency world at a time when a lot of the world started to pivot towards awareness around the environment. You know, really what I feel is the existential crisis, you know, like if we don't, if we don't have a planet, you know, I'm, I'm not uh, crossing my fingers on uh, living on Mars anytime soon, you know. Uh, and so it was really interesting to, to almost go the opposite direction as so many other people. And it feels really nice to be back into it now. So how far along do you think we've come when you think about your role now and what you're seeing versus how you grew up? Uh, it depends on the day and if I'm feeling optimistic or pessimistic. I think in, in some ways, massive strides. You know, you no longer, for the most part, have to fight with people around climate change as an issue. You know, it's for me, it's not really something you believe in. It's you either know it or you don't. You know, <laughs> I think most people know it. Uh, and even if I think back to 15 years ago, if you were dealing with big business, if there was anyone at all that had sustainability in their title, it was usually a very junior admin person who reported into a junior marketing person who reported it. You know what I mean? It was very far down the line, it was very askew from the commercial teams in a business. And now you have chief sustainability officers at big, you know, Fortune 20 companies. And so I think the conversation has evolved dramatically, which is fantastic. And I certainly think if you look at some of the younger activists around the world, I would, I would venture a guess is to say that the, the 15 to 25 to 35 year olds are much more aware of the environment and the threats uh, and some of the mitigating behaviors that they can take and wanted to take action to change how we go about living on the planet than my generation was or my parents or their parents you know so i do think there's a much greater amount of awareness depending on the day you can have a lot of conversations about how far our actions have actually changed or not <clears throat> but I think some of the technological advances in terms of electric cars or plant-based foods or, you know, there's a, there's a lot of momentum to that side. I think people are much more aware of the challenges and the threats. And certainly uh, it doesn't, you know, look, the Arctic is above 100 degrees every year. You know, New York is a tropical climate. Uh, you know, like what more proof do you need to see that the weather patterns are really shifting? You know, and that's having massive impact on, on who we are as a global community. And the impact is going to get much greater and worse before it gets better, if it gets better. So tell me a little bit about any best-in-class examples that you can think of that you've seen um, in this area. 
in in sustainability in terms of i guess uh, corporations and what they're doing mm-hmm. well i think on a on a macro level just the the conversation and some of the movement and awareness away from fossil fuels i mean even if you look at the current administration in the u.s there is climate front and center for the first time and there are conversations around hey we have to get away from fossil fuels uh, so i think on some level that conversation is massive if you look at some of the shareholder movements within like exxon and getting activists on the board to address yeah, you know, past crimes, if I could be so bold, but also the future, those sorts of trends, I think, are incredibly encouraging. If you look at some of the advances in in alternative fuels and hydro and in solar and, and things like that are fantastic. If I can brag about TerraCycle for a little bit as well, you know, there's a lot happening on a, a basic material level of, hey, there's there's a real problem with waste and trash in the world and what can you do about it? And so we work with partners like Colgate and we recycle toothbrushes and turn them into playgrounds for kids. That's a pretty cool advance. You know, there's R&D in there and there's materials and there's all the other stuff, but it's a it's a really nice circular economy type solution. Uh, you know, we are we are working with uh, an organization called Diaper, uh, spelled with a Y, and it's it's compostable diapers. You know, and if you think about I can remember being in high school, you know, 700 years ago or whenever it was, and and someone came to speak at the school assembly and was talking about the number of times per year the Grand Canyon is filled with disposable diapers. You know, and this was a couple billion people ago. You know, it was five billion people in the world or whatever it was. So I think some of these types of solutions and where we're coming with technology is, is pretty exciting. Uh, and then even some things like there's a lot of cities that ban plastic bags now. And it's not necessarily that banning those plastic bags in those cities is going to have a massive, massive impact on the planet. But those are the sorts of legislative steps that raise awareness. And so it becomes front and center for people. And if you grow up without plastic bags, who knows what else that might do to your awareness about how you get around town. Uh, how you deal with takeout foods or, you know, some of the other types of ways that that individuals can have a little bit of impact as well. Can you tell us a little bit more about TerraCycle's mission? Sure. Uh, TerraCycle's mission is very simple and very profound, if you ask me. I guess you just have. Uh, It's eliminating the idea of waste. And so if you go back 100 years ago in, in some of the less populated places of Earth, there was no waste. You know, everything was used. That's sort of the natural environment. A plant sheds its leaves, which fertilize the soil, which grows more plants, but there's no waste to it. You know, you eat a banana, you throw the banana peel out in the forest and the banana peel disintegrates and animals eat it. And then, you know, that's just the cycle. Um, But particularly with the advent of plastics and disposable culture, we have a massive waste issue. We have a massive waste issue. And so TerraCycle's approach is to eliminate the idea of waste. Uh, and it's pretty interesting. We do that in some fundamental ways. The first is by making everything recyclable. So we recycle everything that would otherwise go to landfill. We're not doing with curbside recycling where there are already supply chains set up and we can have that conversation some other time in terms of how effective that really is. And the fact that it's now a money losing proposition for most cities rather than a money earning proposition. But so we deal with on the one hand, you know, how do you make something recyclable? And so we have programs with brands and and companies in 22 countries around the world so far and counting where we enable them to have a national recycling program so we can recycle 
crisp bags and candy wrappers and menstrual cups and things that you would never think of in terms of being recycled. Another arm of what we do is really about making things from recycled products. So we work with Head and Shoulders and collect ocean plastic and make bottles for their shampoo out of the ocean plastic. So how can you, the first is recyclable, the second is make it from recycled materials. And then the third arm in what we do so far is our sister organization called Loop. And Loop is about being reusable. And it really is the old school milkman model. You know, back in the day, your parents, perhaps there was a milkman or come to the house and drop off the milk bottles and you had a deposit for the bottles, right? There's value in that packaging. There's value in that material. And it was heavy and sturdy and reusable. And they'd come and pick it up and wash it and refill it. And there you go. But as we have moved on, people are in a hurry and it's a disposable culture and you feed your kids with little juice pouches and you throw the big plastic pouch away, you know, and you do that four times a day. It's, it's, it's very different. And so Loop is really setting up and building supply chains for reusable packaging. And so now you can get your Haagen-Dazs ice cream or your toothpaste or your, you name it, in reusable containers. And that has been a subscription service which is now rolling out to stores around the world, which is pretty exciting. It's a great mission. And I guess I'm curious about, since it's not, and you did mention curbside recycling for a moment there and said it was a topic for another day, but there's a part Mm -hmm. of, um, when I think about consumer adoption, right? And trying to get people to comply and engage in the behaviors we want them to engage in. Mm -hmm. What are you finding to be the barriers and how are they overcome or at least try to to mitigate them or minimize them when Mm -hmm. it comes to consumers actually being on board with making that extra effort to recycle? Mm -hmm. Uh, The biggest barrier is that for the most part, recycling is a money losing game. You know, there are, you know, essentially the basic equation is it's going to cost you to collect whatever materials you're collecting, you know, and wherever you're collecting them. It's going to cost you to transport those materials somewhere. It's going to cost you to process those materials down into their base elements, if you will, right? Pellets and things like that. And then there potentially is a resale market for some of that material, but probably not. And for the most part, it's, it's, a, it's a losing money game. And so the genius of TerraCycle is in its partnership with brands who pay us the difference in terms of their investment to recycle that material. So in terms of barriers, one, it's expensive. It costs money, you know, and if, if virgin plastic is cheap, you're going to have a hard time incentivizing recycling. And then, you know, you're talking about behavior change and behavior change is really, 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 really difficult, obviously. And particularly when you factor in the world in which we live today, which is very, very fast paced and it's very, very disposable, fast fashion and grab something at the bodega and, you know, eat it and throw out the trap, you know, whatever it is, you go to a stadium, you buy a drink and a sandwich and, you know, you go to lunch and choose your fast food place, you know, each person has this big pile of trash in front of them. Uh, you know, money and behavior change are, are massive barriers. And we could probably talk about others, but on some level, you know, you have those two big barriers. And, and so part of it is what can we do in terms of R&D and innovation and, and being creative about new sorts of supply chains and circular economy and materials and things like that to try and reduce the cost of it. And then, you know, the bigger part is how do we, and it's a, it's a capital we, incentivize and create really global behavior change, you know, and how do you 
you know, how do you tell there's, there's so like, I, you know, I'm a highly educated, at least in school, uh, white guy in the U S you know, like it's easier for me to talk about, Hey, you should buy organic and you sort of recycle and, you know, but I'm not, you know, a single parent with three kids in a poor country that's just trying to survive and, and, and having to like fight that battle every day where, you're telling me to spend more on material that can do a side, but I'm like, listen, I, you know, I'm not interested. I have more basic needs to meet. You know, it's part of the challenge that we faced when I was working in fair trade, and you know, in terms of how do you get how do you get people to pay more for a commodity, and what do you do with that, and and can the people who make the least afford that? So it's communities and individuals. It's fascinating and complex all at the same time. Can you think of any examples of creative ways to? get people to engage more in recycling? Well, this is what I'm theoretically being paid to do. You know, maybe it's because I come from a family of school teachers, but I think education is crucially important. And so how do you, how do you extend that to, to schools and to people so that people can grow up with that sort of, not just understanding, but awareness? And it's also... You know, I'm just one person and sometimes time horizons can be really confusing for me, you know, in the sense that change takes time and how much time, uh, you know, if you're impatient or working towards something, uh, it's hard to take the long view at times. You know, I think behavior change is going to come from a lot of places. One, it has to be, you know, it has to be a combination of legislation, you know, and we're seeing a lot of changes across different regions of the world that way. Uh, but legislation is a big part of it because I think we all know that without any sort of rules, society tends to to bend selfish. <laughs> um, so there's a legislative piece of that. I think there's a good citizen part piece of that, which is partly legislation and, and partly awareness and, and change in our value systems. And then there's individual pieces as well, which is, you know, we are the masses, but it's also sometimes feels daunting if you're just you or your family. So then my short answer is no, I don't have anything <laughs> brand new and amazing that's just popped in my head about how we can make everybody recycle. If every single piece of packaging was made out of solid gold, uh, nothing would go to waste ever. <laughs> you know, we'd have a perfect system. Everything would be perfectly clean, perfectly reused. Nothing would go to waste. That's, uh, that's stuff that we're just trying to think about in conjunction with all our brand partners as well and our, and our service provider partners too. You know, there's some retailers out there in the, I guess, beauty and personal care space, like a, a body mm -hmm. shop or a Lush. I don't know if you have Lush in the U.S. We do. Okay. We do. And so when you buy things from them, when you bring back their packaging, you, there's an incentive, right, to bring it back to them. It's I, I don't think they refill it, but as soon as you return it, you get some discount or something off of your next purchases. They've been affected by COVID in the sense that I was like accumulating all my, my products and empty bottles and I was all excited to bring them back. And then they said, no, we're not taking anything now because of COVID. Mm -hmm. Have you come across that at TerraCycle? So beauty waste is actually a, a, a very big and growing part of our portfolio. And so we work with brands, big and small. We work with big retailers. Uh, so it's definitely, uh, I'm excited about some of the progress in that space and people being concerned about it. And particularly a lot of these startup wellness and health and wellness brands, there's so much wellness in beauty these days. Uh, and I think quite fortunately, wellness extends not just to, uh, you know, how well your skin looks, but it's how healthy you are and how healthy the planet is, you know? And so I think there's 
there's great momentum there. Uh, it, it's interesting. So we certainly have seen collections go down a little bit in COVID. Uh, for us, particularly uh, some of the pub, bigger public locations, we're always looking at efficiencies, right? If, if 10 people send us one piece of waste each, uh, it's not as efficient as if one person sends us those 10 pieces of waste, right? So fundamentally, how can we collect uh, and recycle waste more efficiently is always top of mind for us when we think about these sorts of challenges. The incentive piece on the retailers is interesting. There's a lot of ways you can play it and retailers get really down in the weeds, as you will know at Element 54, and researching in terms of data and looking at what's going to drive incremental sales and what's going to drive foot traffic. And so there's a lot of different mechanisms to play with in terms of buy one, get one free or try our brand for free. And it's, you know, you're crossing over and we've now stolen a customer or whatever it is. So I think there's a lot of different incentives there. And I think part of what we're looking for as well is to understand from individuals and, and consumers what's going to motivate their behavior, what's going to get them to be more excited about recycling. We believe and we've run some pilot programs that prove that the more individuals and communities have access to recycling, the greater the sales lift will be for the brands that sponsor that, which is pretty exciting for us. And so we're looking to roll that out a little bit more. Uh, but the, the, the flip side of that that's, that's a little bit bigger of a, a topic is around the retail piece of that in that, and it's not necessarily retailers so much as manufacturers and producers, but I think one of the big wins for, the, for, for all industry and sort of hoodwinked people is putting the responsibility on individuals. Hey, you and your house need to recycle and you need to compost, and you need to sort your waste, and you, right? and, and you all have to do it on an individual level. And that's great because then the people that are creating you know, 9,000 plastic widgets a day don't have to have any responsibility for what they're putting out there. And so we are starting to see some really interesting less legislative changes in terms of uh, what are called EPRs or extended producer responsibility. So essentially, you know, in Brazil, for instance, you know, the manufacturers of products are now responsible for collecting upwards of 25% of the waste they put out into the world. Now, it's still only 25% of the waste, but it's 25% more than they were responsible for two years ago, you know, or whenever the legislation was passed. So we are starting to see governments in different regions and different areas take action, uh, fund uh, plastic recycling at retailers. Uh, and I think we'll see movement in that space similar to carbon taxes and carbon credits and carbon markets, where we are in some ways pricing these external costs, if you will. You know, it's, a, it's the age old analogy about should a gallon of gas really be about $12 or whatever the number is, if you think about, or a liter of gas, sorry, I forgot where you were. Uh, if we think about uh, you know, the real costs, what it is to clean up the environment, what's the cost in taking care of kids with asthma who live close to highways and et cetera, et cetera. So uh, I do think that as we become more sophisticated as a planet in understanding the science behind climate change, um, we're going to start to see more and more action being demanded by, I think, responsible politicians, responsible business leaders, and, and certainly communities. Yeah, so you've mentioned the government in terms of legislation, different things mm -hmm. businesses can do, and certainly what individuals can do. When you think mm -hmm. about the large scale problem, who do you think really has the biggest impact? So if we had to focus our attention on one of these groups, which one would it be? Uh, it's, it's the government business group. <laughs> 
you know, if you just think about the scale, the scale and the impact, you know, it's Edelman, which is this, you know, it's a, like a PR firm. Um, they run a, a trust report every year to see which institutions or which organizations, you know, where, where the trust is. And, you know, in the U.S., trust in Congress is, feels like it's been at historic lows for, for a long time now. But what's interesting is that trust in brands has gone way up. And I certainly think that social media and influencers on whatever your platform is uh, are proving that, right? You have anybody now has access to everybody in some way. And so if you're a celebrity, you have some reach. Uh, but in terms of scale, you know, these organizations are, you know, think of something like uh, a Nike or an Apple, which is ubiquitous around the world. You know, they're much more trusted than most governments are for good or ill. You know, you can you can take that up with the marketing folks or the advertising folks, but they're much more trusted. And so is there, you know, is it the Spider-Man thing where, you know, with great power comes great responsibility? Uh, ideally, it would be. And I think the, the, the two arms that you're going to have to pull in unison are going to be government and business. And it's the same as looking at financial markets or anything that requires uh, a deft regulatory touch. You know, you're going to have arguments on both sides as people look to maximize whatever it is that their, their goals are. Uh, but I don't, I don't see any other groups that are as influential. I have another question specific to recycling, which is there's a lot of public distrust around what actually happens with the recycling. Mm -hmm. Is that something that you come up against a lot at TerraCycle? A massive amount. And we come up against a massive amount. And on some level, the muckracker activist in me is excited about it. You know, I want organizations and our partners to be curious about what happens, to, to demand excellence, to care enough about the planet, to want to ensure that what we say we do, we do. On the recycling side, it's difficult, you know, because so many municipal recycling programs are not super well run and they're money losers. You know, uh, just a few years ago, a city like Philadelphia would make, you know, let's just call it a dollar a ton or a hundred dollars a ton on recycled material. And now they're having to pay almost the same amount to deal with it. And so if oil prices are cheap, uh, if you look at changes where China is no longer accepting a lot of the recycled uh, goods, there's a little bit of a glut and there's also, it's very difficult to recycle things because waste is so easily contaminated, you know? So even people that are fairly religious about recycling and are using their curbside bins, those waste streams can be contaminated very easily. You know, you can, you can wash out a toothpaste tube all you want, but because the way it's sealed together, you're probably not going to get all the material out of there, even cutting it open and washing it. And that's going to make it really hard to recycle in reality, regardless of what it's made from. And so there are definitely challenges with recycling. And I think it's the type of situation where if a single organization is caught where they say they recycle and really they're just burning everything, then it becomes really easy for someone to cast dispersions upon the entire industry and pull up that example. And so we fight that a lot. You know, we fight that because we're innovative. You know, we have an R&D team that figured out that we could like cryogenically freeze PPE waste and then pulverize it and turn that powder into a filler to go into other products, which is incredible. It's fascinating. And, and our R&D team is, is kind of amazing and, and led by a gentleman that's, you know, been working in plastics and polymers for 
as long as we've been alive and as you know he's worked for every big biotech he's, he's just a genius type of guy are and these so the- types of stories and things that you're doing are they being circulated in the public so that people can understand the the depth and i guess breadth of what you guys are working on and what's possible no, in the world of recycling we're trying to i mean listen we're 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 over the moon. You know, we have recently been named to Time Magazine's 100 Most Influential Companies list. And Fast Company listed us as the third most innovative social good company of the year. And so we're, we're getting, and I say we, I'm, I'm pretty new to the organization, so I can't take really any credit for it. It's really, uh, you know, the team that's been doing this for 20 years. You know, when Tom, our founder and CEO, started it, he was, you know, selling worm poop and recycled bottles. You know, the company is, has really transformed a, a, a lot over the years. But we're at a point where we're starting to get some traction. We're starting to get some cut through. And we welcome those sorts of conversations. We welcome that sort of curiosity because we genuinely believe that the more people can understand what we're doing, the more they're going to support it. Uh, and, and waste is it, everything becomes waste, you know, it, look around your house, walk down an urban street, uh, everything becomes waste. And so what are you going to do with that when we have limited resources and a limited size of a planet? And if, uh, if you think about what's happened in the last 50 or 60 years, when we've gone from, you know, 3 billion to almost 9 billion people and, We've gone from two thirds of the planet being wild to less than a third of the planet being wild. You know, we're, we're talking a planet that has a pretty long history. You know what I mean? Even if you're a creationist, it has a pretty long history. Uh, so that sort of scale of change in such a short time, I think it should concern some people. So the more interest we can get in those sorts of stories, the more interest we can get and people genuinely looking into what they can do individually or the sort of change collaboratively that they can create, the better. I have a question, a very, I guess, specific question about packaging. You know, we work with different consumer packaged goods clients. And when you think about packaging like a can versus a plastic bottle versus a glass bottle, is there a meaningful difference in terms of how these different types of package formats can be recycled and is one really better than the others because you know for companies that let's say try to produce products that look more premium let's say they would Mm -hmm. generally want to go more towards the glass bottles but i don't know what that implication is in terms of the environmental impact and the recycling Mm -hmm. so there are certain materials aluminum a clear glass that have a lot of value on the resale market. And so using those as your packaging, definitely better for recyclability. You know, they will get recycled because there's money to be made, right? Basic, basic human equation. There's money to be made on it, someone's gonna do it. Now it's interesting, right? Because you talk to a manufacturer and they might say, well, glass is heavy and it's more expensive. And so now we're shipping things that are heavier and we can ship less of it. Uh, and there's also the consumer side of it where consumers are like, why do I want to carry glass to the park if I can just carry aluminum and throw it away or carry plastic and throw it away and not have to haul it back? It's a bit like everything, I suppose. It's a bit more nuanced in terms of how you break it down. But from the, the first question, yes, there's a clear hierarchy of what's going to be recycled and what's not. And so, you know, clear single type plastic use plastic bottles, glass, aluminum, that stuff's getting recycled. It's much better. 
the flexible flexible film plastics things that are like mixed plastics where the lid is a different material from the lip is a different material from the body is a different material from the lining is a different material from the base much much harder to recycle the truth is i think the vast majority of, of cpg companies are much more concerned with their bottom line and with sales and convenience and if you look at the trend that packaging has taken from you know, 70 years ago to now, it's all been towards what's easiest and most disposable and most lightweight. And that just happens to be the least sustainable. So that it, it sort of cuts to the crux of the earlier conversation around behavior change. So if consumers are willing to pay more, for example, for products that are in glass packaging, which again does seem to have that um, more premium type of look to it anyway, then that's generally a good thing, right? If the consumer is willing to pay for it, yes. Uh, if the product is widespread enough that, you know, the cost of producing and transporting and collecting that packaging material is mitigated by the amount of sales, uh, you know, all the basic business uh, equations are factored in when you think about it, but, you know, is, is single durable material packaging easier to recycle and in the long run better for the planet? Yes. Are the trends going the other way? Yes. <laughs> you know, and, and, and like you said, it's a question of if consumers are willing to pay more for it. Now, I'm not a single parent with three kids who's living paycheck to paycheck. And if you ask that person, are you willing to pay an extra $2 or pick the, I'm just making a number up for whatever the product is, they might genuinely care about the planet and they might genuinely care about the environment and they might genuinely care about the health of their community and they might genuinely make a choice that's against that because that's what finances afford and it's hard to really yell at that person you know or be upset at that person for the choices that they're making and that i think points at some of the bigger challenges that we have as a as a community you know to to ensure ensure people have some you know it's a it's a it's a nice luxury for me to go and, you know, I'm only going to buy organic grapes or I'm only going to, you know what I mean? And not everyone has that luxury. And that's just a reality that we have to factor into how we can create a system that can accomplish what we want it to accomplish without it being such a burden that, that no one wants to get engaged or involved. You know, fortunately for TerraCycle, and I think for the world in some level, is some of our biggest collectors in the communities that are most inspired are schools. You know, kids get it. Kids get it, and they're 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 super most motivated, and uh, they have tremendous tremendous power for change. You know, they don't, for the most part, know yet what's not possible, and so you nurture them along in whatever way you can, and and you know, you just sort of, I mean, I believe you're a parent, right? You cross your fingers and set them free and see what happens. But I, you know, I have, I have great hope there, not to not to be too Whitney Houston on you, but <laughs> they certainly do seem to have. Um... I guess more of that mindset and to feel like genuine about it and be able to not have the same type of barriers that I think older generations do. Depending on where you are in life, you know, I don't make too broad of generalizations, but you know, if you're younger, things are simpler. You know, there's not, there's not all, your head's not in the way, you know, you just, you, you know something, you do it. It's, it's really simple, you know? And I think as we get older, things remain just as simple, but getting there gets harder and harder. Some of, some of the most simple truths are the most difficult to achieve, you know? Yeah, I would agree with that. Just to wrap up then, 
Is there any advice that you would give to companies who are interested in you know, being more sustainable? Well, certainly for companies that are interested in the recycling aspect of being more sustainable, I would, I would say reach out. We can help, uh, you know, blatant plug there. In general, I feel like there's a lot to be gained from it. I think certainly around the world, we're seeing a global challenge for really good talent. And I think the more your company can live according to principles, the better chance you have of attracting, retaining great talent. So there's a play to be made for the type of culture that you want to build and the type of people that you want to attract to, to build it with. I do remain tepidly optimistic, if not more so, that consumer behavior is changing and awareness is changing. I think there was very much a heightened awareness during the global COVID shutdown. Uh, and again, fortunate enough to be in a city where I can look back on that, you know, having been vaccinated. I know that's not the case around the world. But I think there was a heightened awareness around the problem of waste and trash. And, you know, you saw all the, the sort of meme type pictures that went around of dolphins in places in Italy or sheep in uh, whales or, you know, the natural world coming back into the built world in a way, because people had sort of walked away, you know, stayed home, if you will. And so I hope that awareness sticks with people. You know, I hope that there's a, a, a political shift globally towards more responsible business and responsible. I think there's been great, great strides here in the U.S., even thinking about Chamber of Commerce and some of some of the business roundtables movements towards stakeholders rather than shareholders and understanding that you have an obligation and responsibility that's that's bigger than just your company's PL. Uh, and ideally what we're trying to prove is that by being a good corporate citizen, that you can do well and do good at the same time. And taking the right approach to being responsible about what you create will ideally help you connect to a, a bigger and more passionate consumer base. Great. Thank you so much, Zachary, for your time. It's been a pleasure. Likewise. Really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks for having me. Here are the three key takeaways. Takeaway number one, one of the biggest barriers to recycling is that it's a money losing game. There needs to be a demand for the materials being recycled. And we've heard from Zachary that glass, for example, is more valuable than plastic. But glass costs more, and those costs are then passed along to the consumer, many of whom may not be able to afford to pay the premium even if they have good intentions towards sustainability. So the question for manufacturers is how can we find efficiencies in other parts of the supply chain to help offset the cost of using more sustainable materials such that the net impact on the price to the end consumer is zero. Takeaway number two, behavior change has to come from a lot of different places. Zachary believes it should be a combination of legislation and a change in our value systems. So how do we change our value systems? We can't expect overnight changes, but education is critical, and this should be extended into schools. It's about building awareness with the younger generation who don't carry all the baggage preventing action that adults do. And brands can have a role to play by sponsoring or initiating events, which help educate students about sustainability in ways that are engaging and motivating. And finally, takeaway number three. One of the so-called big wins for industry has been to put the responsibility on individuals. But now there is more legislation around EPRs, which stand for Extended Producer Responsibilities. 
This means that manufacturers of products are now responsible for collecting up to a certain percentage of the waste they put out. So as a manufacturer, getting ahead of the curve on this by being innovative and reducing waste to begin with can help manage total cost of production, making you more competitive while being more environmentally responsible overall. Thank you for listening and stay tuned for other episodes.